For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, who was Sarah Plummer Lemon? Take a look back at her historic achievements. Find out how an organization's been making a difference for people living with HIV and AIDS in Southern Arizona for 25 years. And meet a local artist whose meticulous style holds a unique appeal. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Tohono O'odham call the mountain range to the north of Tucson, Baba Doag, or Frog Mountain. In the late 1600s, Jesuit missionary Eusebio Kino renamed the range the Santa Catalinas. 200 years later, a botanist and artist named Sarah Plummer Lemon became the first white woman to climb to the top. Next, Laura Markowitz brings us her story. It's just after sunrise in the Santa Catalina Mountains, or Mount Lemon, as people around here like to call it. We're up above 9,000 feet. It's cold. I'm just going over my mental checklist here. The most important thing is water, and I have about a gallon. I have my emergency space blanket. Wynne Brown is getting ready to hike the Oracle Ridge Trail. It'll be around 13 miles of treacherous footing and a descent of 3,000 feet. Let's see, I have my phone, I have my notebook, I have a pen. Brown is the author of several books about the Southwest, and currently she's working on a biography of the 18th century woman for whom Mount Lemon is named. There's just something about Sarah Lemon that grabbed me probably seven years ago, and I've read through 1,400 pages of her handwritten letters. I just walk around Tucson with her voice in my ear. Today's expedition is maybe more pilgrimage than mere hike. Brown intends to walk the same route that's thought to be the one that Sarah Lemon and her husband John took in 1881 to reach the summit. And being able to put my feet on the same trail that she walked on, I mean, what a gift (laughs) to be able to do this. I've never hiked this trail. I am, so I'll be looking at this through new eyes, and, and I'm going to try to look at it through Sarah's eyes. What would this have been like this many years ago? This trail's really been decimated by fire. Well, look at the view, though. Look at this, this, at this incredible expanse over here. Ooh, what are we looking at there? Something in the daisy family. One of many thousands of yellow daisy-like plants. Okay. So I think we're just about ready to go. Sarah Lemon was born in Maine. She and John lived in California. So what brought them out to Tucson? There was a botanical frenzy going on in the 1870s and 80s, and everybody wanted to have a species named for them. Everybody was out just clambering up and down the hillsides and combing the the stream beds for, for new ferns, and then sending them off to the very few experts to identify. So because this area had never been botanized, um, it was very tempting. And it was Sarah's idea to come and spend their honeymoon 
botanizing the Santa Catalinas. This was not your typical honeymoon destination. The train had only arrived in Tucson the year before, and there was the ongoing Apache conflict. Also, the lemons were not your typical explorers. Wynne Brown says they both suffered from a host of serious health problems. The whole reason that she was out west was because she couldn't survive the eastern climate. She kept coming down with pneumonia, bronchitis, something called catarrh, which is basically a buildup of mucus in the throat and the lungs. Oh my. Attractive thought. She realized that she was going to die if she hadn't th- another eastern winter. Sarah moved to California in 1871 on her own. And it was there that she met John, who was a Civil War veteran. He'd fought for the Union and been captured by the Confederates. Wynne Brown says he never fully recovered his health after two years of starvation. They were incredibly frail. It just astounds me when I, I think about it. I, looked, I was thinking about that driving up here. It is hard to imagine these two rather sickly characters spending three weeks trying to climb the sheer prickly slopes of the Catalina Mountains. There was no trail. There were impassable ravines. And like any desert hiker, they had to carry their water. What was their equipment like? Well, she, <laughs> she wrote her sister about her outfit and she wore a deep olive green walking suit made out of broadcloth and corduroy, which had to be incredibly hot. And it was a short dress on top and then it had Turkish trousers on the bottom. Then she was wearing leather leggings and hobnailed boots and gloves and a broad-brimmed hat. And then they were also carrying plant presses. They had water, they had some kind of bran mush, and they had little rubber cups because sometimes the water was scarce and they'd have to be able to squish them into a crack in the rock to get some water. Oh, that's an evening primrose there. It's not flowering at the moment, but... And there was a penstemon back there, too, and some lupins. Brown says botany was not a very lucrative profession, uh, at least not for the lemons. Oh, they were constantly trying to figure out ways to make money. They were collecting plants and then selling the seeds, selling specimens, and, and getting about, oh, you know, pennies per plant. They found about 300 new species in Arizona. The mountain marigold, sometimes called lemons marigold, named for him, not her, was one of their commercial successes. This was the first place where they found it. They apparently collected seeds from it. That plant from here is the stock that all the nursery plants that we now get are from. And we have it in our yard. I planted it last year. I stop and tie my shoe leg. If you backed up a step, you would tumble about 2,000 feet to your death. That's so. why it seems like a good idea to tie my shoelace. Ooh, hang on. What are these? There's something in the raspberry family. They're beautiful, aren't they? I have to get a picture of this. The equivalent of the camera for Sarah Lemon was her paintbrushes. Wynne Brown says Sarah hiked with art supplies, and she painted hundreds of detailed botanical illustrations. She published them in books, which sold for 25 cents a copy. When John and Sarah were, were up here, they were finding a lot of new species of plants, and they referred to them as new glories. And I keep finding these treasures about Sarah and thinking of them, ooh, another new glory. (laughs) 
Sarah Lemon studied physics and chemistry at Cooper Union in New York. She was the first woman to address the California Academy of Sciences and the second woman to be admitted as a member. She also worked as a volunteer nursing injured Civil War soldiers at Bellevue Hospital, and that's probably where she met Clara Barton. She met Clara Barton? She did. Clara Barton is famous for establishing the Red Cross, and years later, Sarah Lemon established Red Cross chapters in San Francisco and Oakland. She established Santa Barbara's first library. She helped establish the first Natural History Association in Santa Barbara. A new glory that I just discovered is that she founded the first training school for nurses on the West Coast. Uh, she once wrote that to her it's like death to be idle. Sarah is certainly a role model for me because there are times where I might have wanted to quit on something and then I think, you know, I don't have pneumonia and bronchitis and um, I have all these tools and I have the, the same curiosity and I try to be as resilient as, as she was. After weeks of trying, Sarah and John Lemon failed to reach the summit from the Tucson side. They gave up. They were out of supplies. But actually, Sarah didn't give up. She and John had heard that a rancher over in Oracle knew of a way up the north side. So they made the 40-mile journey to meet Emerson Oliver Stratton, and he agreed to take them up to the top. Sarah Lemon finally realized her dream of reaching the summit. Isn't this just amazing? Wow. You can just see, I don't know, how many miles away we're looking there. Oh, hundreds. Emerson Stratton was distantly related to Pima County surveyor George Roscruge, and he convinced Roscruge to put Sarah Lemon's name on the map to honor her achievement as being the first white woman to reach the summit of the Catalinas. And what's amazing is that Sarah and John came back 25 years later in 1905 to celebrate their silver wedding anniversary by doing this trip, by going from Oracle. And they looked up Emerson, Stratton, and the three of them, and they were all in their 70s at that point, came up this mountain. And I hope I'm still doing that in my 70s. Wynne Brown hopes that Sarah Lemon's story of grit, perseverance, and living life as a trailblazer will inspire all of us. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. You can learn more about Sarah Plummer Lemon on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. There are an estimated 1.2 million people living with HIV in the United States. Death rates from the virus have dropped as much as 60% since the year 2000, and those with HIV are living longer and healthier lives. New medicines can help protect their loved ones from contracting HIV. But since one in seven people who are HIV positive are not aware of it, the infection continues to spread. The Tucson Interfaith HIV AIDS Network is a privately funded organization that's been creating a community of support, services, and understanding for 25 years. My guests, Executive Director Scott Blades and care partner Tim Haver, have been part of that mission since the beginning. Scott Blades begins by explaining what the term interfaith means in Tihan's name. 
Well, for me, interfaith is people from all faiths, but also people who have no faith background. So we put interfaith in the name because we wanted to make sure that people know that faith communities are needed and an important part of the solution to the stigma of HIV. But we really are a coalition of individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and faith communities of various denominations all joined together to support people living with HIV and to address the stigma and talk openly about what HIV is and isn't, how it can and cannot be transmitted, and how we can be part of the solution. How have you seen response to the stigma change over 25 years? It's interesting. In some ways, it's harder to get volunteers. It's harder to get donors than it was in the early 1990s, in part because people don't see it as a critical issue. It's just become a chronic issue that people have heard about for the last uh, almost 40 years. And so the sense of urgency is gone. That's good news in many ways because people are living longer with HIV. Medications have been developed that are keeping people alive. Unfortunately, there's still thousands and thousands of people here in the United States alone who are contracting HIV every year. So it's now 1.1 million people living with HIV. But because the death rate has gone down, people don't see it. It's not on the news as often. It's not your friends and family members passing away like it was in the early days. Tim, could you please give us the story of your diagnosis and how it is that you ended up being a part of the mission at Tihon? I was um, working as a restaurant manager in Denver. It was um, in the early years of the, the pandemic, and I would get myself tested every six months. And there was one incident that I recalled that I thought I may have been exposed. So I went in and, and got tested again, and sure enough, I was positive. For the next 10 years, I didn't see a physician. I was just scared and so mortified and humiliated. I saw all my friends, you know, dying around me. Some of them were on medication, some of them weren't. Back in the early days, the medications that were available were just as lethal as the disease. In 1994, I moved to Tucson to take care of my parents. And I decided that, um, I better start taking care of myself before I can take care of anybody else. So I was, um, I was referred to the El Rio Special Immunology Associates Clinic and began treatment. And I think it was the following year that I was invited to my first Paws Cafe, that is a, a monthly luncheon that Tihon sponsors. The several faith communities get together and put on this fabulous luncheon for people living with HIV and then we get a care package full of all kinds of um, hygiene items, the, the kind of items that you can't buy on food stamps or, you know, that help out a great deal when you're living on a limited income. And now that you've been part of Tihon for 25 years, the span of the agency's existence, are you still meeting people that remind you of yourself during that 10-year period? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Um, I've met numerous people who have either not been tested or have been tested and have not um, started medication because of the stigma, once again. And uh, it's, it's very sad to see because people don't need to suffer. People really don't. And with the, the help of Tihon and the other social agencies that we have in Tucson, you know, it, it's really unnecessary. 
Scott, tell me how you go about making an environment a safe space for people who may have been in the place that Tim was at for those 10 years. What's the first step, do you think, in building trust and community with these people? First and foremost is if you're coming from a place of help, if you have the heart to help, even if you don't know a whole lot about HIV, even if you haven't been impacted by knowing someone with HIV, if your heart is in the right place, we can provide the basic information. And we have a great orientation for incoming volunteers to make sure that people have a baseline knowledge about HIV, what it is and what it isn't, and help people understand you cannot catch HIV from someone that you're working with, from somebody that you're helping, and then showing them that it's basic things. It's the handshake. It's the hug. It's the care in your voice. It's the willingness to listen. It's the willingness to open up and let somebody share their experience of stigma and heartbreak and navigating a messed up healthcare system. And they need some help. They need some hope, but they also may need some practical help. And they need somebody that won't judge them. Well, speaking uh, personally, my partner was dying of AIDS in 2006. He was on his deathbed. And his family was up from Mexico and didn't speak English very well. But his mother asked me if I could find a Catholic priest to give him the last rites. I, I was stumped at first, and then I thought of Tihon. And I called Tihon, and within an hour, there was a Catholic priest administering the last rites to my partner. It was such a wonderful gift to his family and especially his mother. I have seen people that have benefited from Tihon by getting grants for um, deposits for apartments, um, to pay electric or gas bills. Scott, 25 years as executive director seems like a great span of longevity in this field for you to to stay in that position and to see Tihan through difficult times. But for someone who would say, well, aren't you just duplicating the work of, say, SAAF, SAFE, the Southern Arizona AIDS Foundation, what would you cite as the primary reason why Tihan and SAFE both need to be there? I think it's really important that people have lots of options for support. We know that most of the referrals for people living with HIV to get services from Tihan come from case managers at SAFE. That tells you we do different things. SAFE is great at providing case management and housing support and prevention. That's not what Tihan does. That's SAFE's niche. Tihan's niche is providing one-on-one volunteer-based support services like meals, like social support and emotional support, care packages, living well with HIV classes. Those are things that Tihan does and we do it well. And we encourage everyone to get tested at least once a year. The CDC says everybody should get tested if you're between the age of, I think it's 16 and 64. Well, we know that there are kids younger than 16 that are having sex. And we hope that there are people over the age of 64 that are having sex. So we encourage everyone to get tested once a year. It's simple, it's fast, and today there is something that you can do if you do test positive. You can still live well with HIV. My guests were Scott Blades and Tim Haver. 
The Tucson Interfaith HIV AIDS Network is celebrating 25 years in the community by holding its largest fundraiser of the year, Treasures for Tihan, on June 15th at the University Marriott Park Hotel, with dinner, dancing, and an auction. You can find more information and access to the services of Tihan at tihan.org. The focus of Albert Chamillard's art is pen and ink drawings of large geometrical shapes. But these representations are composed of hundreds of thousands of tiny hand-drawn lines. Cross-hatching is a meticulous approach, but it's one that Chamillard finds both solace and creative satisfaction in doing. And an appreciative audience online seems to find these qualities reflected in the drawings. We'll find out more about his personal process next in this story produced by Andrew Brown. It was problem solving. I wanted to make work that didn't look like everything else. And how do you do that as an artist? How do you make work that's yours and doesn't, doesn't look like all the other stuff that's out there? I've always drawn since I was like three years old. I was the youngest of four, and that was kind of what we did for entertainment. And I never stopped. I just never stopped drawing. Eventually went to school, got a degree in art for it. Even though I experimented with printmaking and painting and some sculpture stuff, I always ended up back at drawing. And that's kind of how I think of myself as an artist, a drawing artist. That's all really I'm interested in. Several things happened. I became a dad, and when my first daughter was born, it was harder for me to work in a studio. So I had to make work that I could do at home, smaller scale. And so I started working in small books and would just draw compulsively, just night after night after night. I knew I liked process work. I liked the kind of long hours it put into a drawing especially because that was another problem. Most people think of drawing as a sketch, kind of quick, loose. I wanted something that was developed and time consuming. Cross hatching is a drawing technique that, I don't even know how old it is. I, I guess I think of stuff from 300 years ago, printmakers using it. Hatching is a single layer of lines. It's almost in a herringbone pattern that goes back and forth, just so your eye can differentiate. Cross-hatching is when you add additional layers to that. So that's one layer, that's two layers, that's three layers. I remember showing work as an artist before Instagram. You'd be lucky to have people in your town know who you were. And so it is gratifying and awesome to have people all over the world write to me and tell me how much my, they love my work and that kind of thing. It's definitely, it's a new paradigm for artists. Tucson's a great place to be an artist and to make work. I think it's a hard place to survive on sales of your work. The reason I can't just move to another mid-sized city that's comparable has to do with the light. Walking out to your backyard and looking at a bush, that's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see blasting highlight a very small mid-range and a very black shadow. And that's the first thing I notice when I go anywhere else is everything's just weaker. You can't reproduce this anywhere. My studio is located in the East Hive. This is quintessential Tucson in a weird kind of way. An abandoned office complex behind the mall is about as Tucson as you can get. It's an amazing space and I love it here.
one of the problems, like I was talking about earlier, to solve is how to use good quality materials without having to buy necessarily the expensive art stuff. I'd love to describe the pen. I love it. It's a Pilot G2. Even though these are pretty easily available, they're not too expensive. It uses an archival gel ink that's fantastic. They have no fade. I've written some notes to the Pilot company, but they're not responding to me. They're ignoring me. <laughs> so sometimes I tag them on Instagram and stuff. This is a typical ledger I use. It's just an old, antique, pretty commonly found ledger from the 1920s. A lot of old ledgers use great paper. I had a friend about 10 years ago send me a lined ledger, a blank one. So I started sketching and working in it, and right away I was like, this is something I like. I like how this looks. I like how I can place images on this paper. And I'd find all the places where there's blank pages and just start filling them in. More sketches, ideas that I did and didn't like. I like the completed book and it's very intimate to sit there and to look through a book and to look through drawings. But then I really like seeing them like this too. And I like where you can back up a little bit, you can kind of breathe them in a little bit differently. And at first I was doing figurative work, I was drawing whales, and, and then I decided just to move down to really basic imagery, just shapes, triangles, squares, circles, and that kind of thing. And then over the past few years, it started to develop more into three-dimensional space and how to achieve that using the same technique of just cross-hatching. Another problem that I had to, I had to answer. It's not meditative. I think a lot of people ask me that, is it meditative to make, and I don't, it's not. It's meditative maybe to look at. You can look at it and imagine putting all that work into it. But when I'm doing it, I'm very aware, I'm very kind of in my moment, and my mind is racing with thoughts. Everything in my life is in these drawings, all of it. It's, you know, fear and worry and happiness and hope. All of it goes into it. I love being an artist, so doing this is kind of like it feels great to be engaged. And when you're doing it day after day after day, it's, I don't know, something happens. It's not just me making my art for all artists, I think. If you're in a daily practice, that act opens your mind up to, to, to making better art. Andrew Brown produced this profile of Albert Chamillard for Arizona Illustrated. You can see the TV story on our website at azpm.org. Albert Chamillard's work is part of an exhibition called A Patterned Language. It's at the Etherton Gallery on South 6th Avenue through Saturday, June 15th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.